One of the things I love about Henry's prayers, there's many things, but one is, uh, it just struck me, you make God sound so, and this is a compliment, assumed. You know, of course, we're here to praise God. You know, and I just love that just um, way that you focus us in on why we're here. Thank you, Henry. Uh, Take your scriptures and turn to Matthew uh, chapter 8 as we continue in our series there. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 17. Please allow me to implore on the Holy Spirit to enliven these words to us. Spirit, I ask you to take these words that we are about to read from your Holy Scripture and use them and apply them to our lives. Help us, Lord, to appreciate what Christ has done for us just that much more because of them. Lord, your word is precious. Let us approach it this morning as if it was our last meal. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, when I fly, which is not that often, I think I'm going to get on a flight with my daughter to look at some colleges in a couple weeks, and uh, I went to Namibia a couple years ago. But when I fly, I love to look out the window. I like the window seat. I know there's some of you here that go, no, I'd rather be in the middle and not know what's going on, that we're 30,000 feet above the, the earth. But I love to look out the window. Um, I love watching the different perspectives of the earth. I love flying at 30,000 feet and looking out on a clear day and, and seeing in a macro way what God has created. You see whole mountain ranges. You can see them and, and just take them in. You look and you can see entire lakes. You see the divide between the land and the sea and, and, the, and the jagged coastline. You see the, even if, if you're high enough, you can see the slight curvature of the earth. And then as you're, as you're coming down to land at about 33,000 feet, you begin to see a little bit more detail. Things become a little bit more clear that are on the ground. Those, those long straight lines that you saw from way up high, you see, is now, oh, they're roads. Or you see the differences between, it's just not a city, but you start seeing the suburbs. You see the, the differences between the prairie and the forest. And then as you come in for landing, when you're, when you're 300 feet, you begin to see the details. You begin to see the, the color of the buildings, what style they are. The, uh, you can even see the people maybe in the cars or walking on the streets. You see the, the crops that are actually planted in those fields that you saw as little squares higher up. In other words, as you descend, you go from macro to micro. You go from less detail to more detail. And that's kind of how I'd like to approach our text this morning. To go from the macro to the micro. To go from, from, from 30,000 feet to 3,000 feet to 300 feet and see what we can see in God's word this morning. See what God wants to tell us this morning. So look with me at chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Listen to what God has has reserved for us for thousands of years. 
When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for proof to them. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly, I say to you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, uh, centurion, to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. I don't expect you to remember this, but several months ago, when I was preaching on chapter 4, the end of chapter 4 in Matthew, I told you that chapters 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, those five chapters are a literary unit. They hold together. In between those two bookends, we, at the first bookend, in, in the end of chapter 4, we read there that Jesus traveled and went to the synagogues and he taught and he went into the villages and he healed. And at the end of chapter 9, we read almost those exact same words in verse 35. So what Matthew is doing is he's putting a bookend on this section. And inside that bookend, he has two books, that, that which he taught and that which he did, which he healed. And what we call the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7, is that book of what he taught. Matthew's giving us an experience of what Jesus taught as he went around that Galilee. And now, in chapters 8 and 9, what he is doing is he's showing us what Jesus did, going around and healing. Okay? And what Matthew wants us to see there, in these two chapters is the powerful coming of the kingdom of God. Jesus has just preached on it. Now he's going to show that powerful coming physically. That's the 30,000 foot view that Matthew wants us to have. The kingdom is coming powerfully to earth. 
And we see that in these two chapters in the nine healings that are contained there. There are nine healings that we are going to talk about, three of them today. And he's showing that with, with his coming, with Jesus Christ's coming, the kingdom of God is coming to earth powerfully and progressively. The kingdom of God is coming to earth powerfully and progressively. Matter of fact, that's one of the major themes of the gospel that we call Matthew. It's the kingdom of heaven, which is synonymous with the kingdom of God. The only reason that Matthew uses the kingdom of heaven is because he has a Jewish audience. He's writing to a Jewish audience, and the word the, and, and God's name is precious. So he he's reframing it. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, is coming to earth. We see that with the first words that Jesus said after coming out of the desert when he inaugurated his, his ministry. Back in chapter 4, verse 17, we read that Jesus' first words were repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He's announcing what's going on. And then Matthew is just taking that, and he's going to show us that throughout the rest of his gospel. And one of the ways he shows that is through the miracles of healing. And that's what chapters 8 and 9 are meant to show us. God's kingdom powerfully and progressively coming to earth by healing a leper. By healing a centurion's servant. And by healing Peter's mother-in-law with a touch. We'll go on in, in chapters 8 and 9 to see that he's, he's going to heal uh, a couple of demon-possessed men in the end of chapter 8. At the beginning of chapter 9, he's going to heal a paralytic and actually tell him that his sins are forgiven. It's a big statement when he's healing. And a bleeding woman and a ruler's daughter who is actually dead, he's going to raise her to life. And then two blind men who can't see, but then do see. And so Matthew is showing us physically what is actually happening spiritually. That's what's going on here. The reality that God's kingdom is coming powerfully. A little later on in, in, the, in the gospel, right about at the tipping point of his ministry in chapter 16, you have that interchange between he and his disciples when he says, you know, he has a hard teaching and many disciples leave and, and he turns to his disciples and says, are you going to leave too? And, you know, Peter comes, wonderful Peter. You know, we love him for his boldness. He says, where else will we go? You have the words of life. Remember what Jesus says to him? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but the Father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not prevail against it. I hope you see that image that Jesus is painting there as an offensive one and not a defensive one. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. A lot of us read that and we go, well, hell is kind of leaning on the gates of heaven and pushing it. It's just the opposite way around. The, the gates of, of heaven, just like Samson. You remember that story of Samson when he takes the gates and he, he tears them off and he goes up into the hills? That's the image that is being painted here. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's an offensive image. The kingdom of heaven is going to press in and conquer powerfully, progressively. 
God's kingdom is pressing against the gates of, of hell. God's kingdom is invading, pervading, permeating Satan's kingdom, the kingdom of the air here. The light of Christ's kingdom is going to scatter the darkness. That's the image that Jesus is painting here for us. That the kingdom is coming progressively and inevitably. You know those parables that Jesus taught a little later on in in Matthew when he's describing the kingdom of heaven to his disciples. And he says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than any of the garden plants so that birds can come and nest in its in its branches. And then he told another parable right alongside it. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So he, he's talking, he's trying to get us to understand that the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth not only powerfully but progressively. It's not coming all at once. It's going to come progressively. Just like a seed, that small seed grows into the largest of garden plants. Just like a little leaven just works its way throughout the whole dough. So we need to remember this. This 30,000 foot view that, that, that Matthew is giving us here. Brothers and sisters, we have to remember this. The kingdom is coming powerfully. It is coming progressively. Because many times it doesn't look like it, does it? I mean, we, we always say this, right? Especially at this time. <laughs> it always seems like it's always especially at this time. But we do have to remember that, especially at this time. Because it doesn't look like it. You look around the world and it looks not like Christ's kingdom is winning. It doesn't feel like it a lot of times, does it? It actually feels sometimes like we're on the wrong side of history. few of us this summer began to stand down in town with uh, pro-life signs. And we felt, those of us who did it, just felt convicted to do that. Do something in the fight against abortion. We did it politely. We did it respectfully. We made signs that expressed the preciousness of life. that God created life, that babies are human beings. It was interesting. For much of the reaction that we received, we could easily get the impression that we are standing on the wrong side of history. That Satan's kingdom is actually winning. We had some thumbs up, some some positive waves and, and honks, for sure. But I would say by far we were confronted with what we were doing and, and judged for what we were doing, yelled at, belittled, and uh, given gestures, and even made to feel like we're the ones that are actually doing the harm here. Just by silently holding signs that talked about the unborn babies being human beings, one woman told us we were hurting their business. Another told us that we were harming society 
by filling it with unwanted babies. Another one told us that we were harming her child by exposing her to this subject. Another, several others told us that we were being hostile towards women. Another woman even told us that God will judge us harshly for doing what we were doing. And on several occasions, people made uh, pro-abortion signs and stood next to us. And leaving those times, many, many times we felt like we were on the wrong side of history because there was so much against us. So many negative comments. My point is this. In much of life, it might look like God's kingdom is not coming powerfully. It might not feel even as if God's kingdom is coming. In fact, it might look like his kingdom isn't even here sometimes. It might feel and look as if Satan's kingdom is actually progressing and ours regressing. And that's exactly the point at which we have to remember texts like these. Right here. Remember the 30,000 foot view that Matthew is giving us here. This is exactly the point that we have to live by faith, brothers and sisters, and not by sight. We have to believe what God's word is telling us, not what our experience is. Because, brothers and sisters, if you live by experience, you will be crushed. We live by faith. And it buoys us, as I was buoyed this week, by reminding myself, in light of my experiences, no, God's kingdom is powerful and progressive and inevitable. I think that's, that's a little what J.R.R. Tolkien was getting at in his second book, The Two Towers, if you've read that or seen the movie. In that book, he has that, that, that huge scene that takes up a massive amount of that book of the Battle of Helm's Deep. Do you remember the Battle of Helm's Deep where the freedmen flee the, the, the coming uh, army of Saruman and they flee to Helm's Deep, this impregnable fortress with high walls, thick walls, and, and they're confident that, that nothing is going to, to breach them? And, the, and as the orcs are coming, uh, they see that their numbers are few. And so Gandalf rides off. Do you remember this? And he says, I'll be back. Look for me at the dawn of the third day. Don't you love how Tolkien weaves in the third day, right? I'll be back on the dawn of the third day. And, but what happens in the battle is the orcs actually breach Helm's Deep, don't they? And they pour in. And, and they're, they're just killing people and marching through the fortress. And, and finally, you're at that last scene where Theoden and Aragorn and a couple others are in the last room that hasn't been breached and the orcs are pounding on the door, right? And the door is starting to crack. And they decide to ride out and die in honor. And so they ride out. And, and, and at least in the movie, the, the, uh, the camera pans up and, and you see them riding out and they're just surrounded by thousands of these evil, the evil army. And they're, and they're being crushed and they're being taken off their horses. It seems like that's it. And then the sun arcs, right? 
And uh, you know, everybody looks up, and as their eyes adjust, there is Gandalf with the vast army that comes down and obliterates. Brothers and sisters, I think that's the theme that Matthew is working with here. That's certainly the theme I think Tolkien is working with here. God's kingdom will powerfully, progressively, but inevitably come to earth. And we have to remember that. Next, we lower our altitude a bit. And we begin to see that these three physical healings exemplify a greater healing, a spiritual healing. And we see that Jesus heals us spiritually, not just physically, but spiritually. Look with me at verses 16 and 17 in your text. There we read this. That evening, this is the kind of end of of our text here. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. And he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. You've heard people say this to you sometimes. I'll give you three guesses and the first two don't count. Have you ever had a person say that to you? What they're basically saying to you is, you know, the answer is pretty obvious, right? It's an obvious thing. And, and I think that's what, what Matthew is doing here. He's giving us the obvious answer to what is this text about. You know, sometimes text you have to kind of work at it. I think of it when I'm doing my exegesis as a walnut. You know, there's, and you're working around it and finally cracks open. You go, ah, that's what I think God wants us to get from this text. Matthew just makes it obvious in verse 16 and 17. Matthew is actually self-exegeting here. He's giving the reason for these healings that Jesus came not to heal necessarily physically, although he did, but he's coming to heal spiritually. He's coming to heal spiritually. Matthew quotes from Isaiah 53.4 there. Now, you, just as you, I'm sure, know already, but when a New Testament author is quoting from the Old Testament, he's just, not just using it as a proof text like we do. He's actually expecting us to know the context of that verse and then to bring the full force of that context forward and apply it to that text. So it behooves us from time to time in your devotions when an Old Testament text is, is, is mentioned just to flip back and kind of understand the context of the Old. And what we find here is that Isaiah 53 is probably the most explicit Old Testament passage that talks about the coming Messiah and what the Messiah was going to do. Okay? To heal his people spiritually. That's what Isaiah 53 is all about. And it is explicit in how he will accomplish this. I had us read earlier in the time when we uh, read our scripture publicly together uh, a portion of Isaiah 53. You can look at it in your bulletins again. He has surely come and borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's Matthew's quote. Yet we esteemed him stricken, Isaiah goes on, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All like sheep have gone astray. That's talking about us. 
We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. Isaiah is telling us explicitly here that the Messiah will come to bear in his body the penalty for sin. He will come and bring us peace. How? How will we have peace? By him taking the chastisement of God, the wrath of God. He will come to gather his sheep. How is he going to gather his sheep? By the Messiah absorbing the penalty for sin. Isaiah is telling us that we are terminally sick with sin and the Messiah will come one day to heal us of that. And that is what we see in each one of these three narratives. That's how we're supposed to see these healings. And by the way, the healings that go on in chapter 8 and 9 as well. The late pastor of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, James Boyce, wrote this. In each of these stories, he's talking about our text now. Sickness is used as an illustration of sin. And Jesus' healing of those who are physically sick becomes an outward demonstration of the Lord's more important authority over sin and his ability to forgive it. He goes on to say, Matthew is making the point that Jesus' healing of our sickness is evidence of a far more important healing of our sins which is what these stories are actually about. That's what these stories are actually about. And when we begin to see that these healings, we begin to see these healings through the lens of Isaiah 53, which is what Matthew wants us to do, I think we see five important truths about salvation. Five important truths about salvation. First of all, that we are spiritually sick. We're actually spiritually sick. That's what each of these stories shows us, isn't it? Those who had leprosy 2,000 years ago were as good as dead. As good as dead. There was no cure, no hope, no remedy. The centurion's servant, lying there paralyzed, it said, it obviously must have been serious and potentially life-threatening for that master to come and seek out Jesus. And Peter's mother-in-law had a fever. We, you know, when we get fevers today, we go, oh, you know, I had a fever a couple of days ago. Well, not in COVID, right? But let's say before COVID, we say, we had a fever a couple of days ago. It's gone, you know. Or I have a fever today. I'm not going to come to work. I'll be there on Monday. 2,000 years ago, you had a fever. You, you could very potentially die. The point is, they were all sick and dying and there was no remedy that they had. And that's exactly what the Bible tells us about us where sin is concerned. Takes us, takes it, as a matter of fact, it takes it to a whole other level, doesn't it? If you read the, the book of Ephesians, this is the second chapter, you read that we're just not sick spiritually. That's bad enough. We're actually dead. We're dead spiritually. That's what Paul was inspired to write by the Holy Spirit when he says, as for you, he's talking to the Ephesians and to us, you were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in the way you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and the kingdom of the air. From God's perspective, before salvation, you're dead. Not just sick, 
And there is nothing we can do to change that situation. Which leads us to the second point. We're not only sick, but we are helpless in that sickness. Both the leper and the centurion sought out Jesus because there was nothing they could do. I'm sure the centurion did all he could do before he left to find Jesus. And he couldn't do much. Peter's mother-in-law was bedridden and dying. The point is, they were helpless in their sickness. Absolutely helpless. It was out of their control. I don't know how many here uh, watched the replacement for our Sunday school this morning, the Bible Project, but it was all about Ecclesiastes. And if you watch that, you learn something about Ecclesiastes. I learned something about Ecclesiastes. You know, that, that reinforces what our brother Aaron taught us several years ago about Ecclesiastes. It's all about control. You don't have control over your life. It's meaningless. It's vain to think that. The, the, the Hebrew there word translated meaningless and vain is actually it's like smoke. You try and grab it and it goes away. It's out of our control. And that's the point that each of us has to come to where sin is concerned. It's out of your control. You can't control your sin. You know, we try to, right? We try to white-knuckle our morality, right? Let me, let me put on my best face I can. We try to be good enough. But we can never stop sinning. Sometimes we can suppress it enough. You kind of bury it enough so that some people that are this distance from me don't see it. But try living with me. We might be able to stop our mouths from swearing, but not our minds. We might be able to stop our eyes from wandering, but not our hearts. That's what Jesus was talking about in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where anger and lust are concerned. We are helpless to stop the relentless onslaught of our own sin. We are sin-sick lepers. We don't have the nubs for fingers and the white specks all over us, but that's what we look like prior to Christ. We are dying slowly of a fever sin, of sin fever. Now our human nature doesn't like to accept this truth and so what do we do? Sometimes we try and lessen God's holiness. If you read any of R.C. Sproul, he, he harps on this. Let's just take the, the commands of God, the holiness of God and bring it down to our level so that we can actually attain it. Some of us do that. Others of us do, the, do another thing to try and make us, ourselves feel good. We try and we, we, we make sin not as bad as the Bible tells us it is. That's not that bad. It's just a white lie. Perhaps, you know, we think of sin as not as having the devastating soul killing effect that it really does. Perhaps that's you here today. Perhaps you're here saying inside, Yep, I sin, but that's not such a big deal. It's not hurting anybody. Remember what David prayed in Psalm 51. Who's he sinning against? Against you and only you, Lord, have I sinned. You're hurting God. Thirdly, we see that sin is a matter of life and death here. Notice all three people were going to die. It was inescapable in their eyes. That's why the leper left the colony. 
That's why the powerful and prestigious centurion sought out Jesus. Death was imminent, and they knew it. All three of these people were on the path to death. That's what the scriptures tell us about sin, isn't it? Sin puts us on the path to death. Back in the garden in in Genesis chapter 3, that's what God was telling Adam. Don't eat of the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. Otherwise, you will surely die. That puts you, another way of framing it is, that puts you on the path to death. Don't do it. Romans 6.23 tells us the same thing. The wages of sin is death. The pathway is paved with little sin pavers. James even describes what this path looks like in his first chapter. He says, After desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, does what? Gives birth to death. James adds at the end of that section, Don't be deceived, brothers. And boy, do we get deceived by that. We read that and we don't take it seriously. It's deception to think that sin is not a life or death proposition. It is. We get deceived all the time. We might hear a sermon like this and believe that sin is serious for a while, but boy, let let life wash over us in an afternoon of football and we forget about it. We have to read texts like this and realize each day that sin is a matter of life and death. Fourth, the truth that we begin to see through the lens of Isaiah 53 about this text is that faith is necessary for healing. Faith is necessary for healing. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourselves, it is a gift from God so that no one may boast. We are saved through faith, brothers and sisters. Faith is the conduit through which salvation flows. Faith is the channel down which, down through which salvation comes. It is the pipe that brings salvation to our lives. Faith is a necessary ingredient to have if you are to be saved. We see this in the leper, don't we? In verse 2, you see the leper asks very interestingly, very interestingly, if you will, he says to Christ, you you can heal me. Notice he doesn't say, if you can. There's faith there. And that's underscored by how Jesus answers him, I will be clean. He recognizes that the leper, even in his very verbiage, is saying, I believe, I trust, I I have faith. The centurion had great faith that Jesus made a point of. Jesus, only two times does it say Jesus marveled. A lot of people marveled at Jesus, but only twice in all four Gospels does Jesus ever marvel at somebody else. And this is one of them. And he marvels because of the faith that the centurion had. He says in verse 10, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And goes on to inform those Jews listening that salvation doesn't come through bloodline. That's the point of what Jesus is saying there. It's not going to come because your father is Abraham. It's going to come by faith. 
And he's going to reinforce this in, the, in, the, in this chapter when they're out on that boat, right? And they're worried they're going to drown. Salvation doesn't come by bloodline, but by faith. I mean, that's what is so remarkably wonderful. I know this is self, a little self moment here. It's so wonderful about my daughter. She realizes that it doesn't come because she's a pastor's son, a daughter. She doesn't, well, definitely not son, daughter. Doesn't come because she came to church since she was six months old, six weeks old. Salvation doesn't come and is not assumed. It comes through faith. Faith in Christ. That she explained very well. But fifthly, we must act on this faith. That's what we see in this. We have to act on this faith. It is a gift, it is, but it is also something we must employ. We have to act on that faith. We must make our way to Jesus Christ, just as these people did. Faith is not faith without action. Let me say that again. Faith is not faith without action. I don't know how much clearer the Bible can be than than James chapter 2 on this, right? Faith without deeds is dead. Faith has to have actions. You can say you have faith, 100% faith that a parachute will work. Yet, until you're at 15,000 feet and looking out at nothingness below you and jumping out, you're not acting on it. It's not real faith. You can have all the faith in the world that Jesus can save you. But if you don't make your way to Jesus Christ and act on that faith, it doesn't mean anything. Faith must be accompanied by action. And that's what we see the leper doing. That's what we see the centurion doing. And the question must be asked at this point. Have you, sitting here, have you at home made your way to Jesus? Have you acted on the faith? You might be sitting there at home, you might be sitting here in the sanctuary thinking, I have faith in Jesus. Have you acted on it? Have you come to Jesus and said, I can't do it. I can't save myself. I can't be good enough. I can't be upright enough. I can't go to church enough. Have you, have you gone to the foot of Jesus and knelt down as the leper did and said, you have to cleanse me. I can't do it myself. Because that, my friend, if you are feeling that nudge, if you are feeling maybe a God-given guilt over the way you have led your life, a God-given guilt. That might be Christ giving you the faith so that you can come to him. And ask for healing. Ask for forgiveness. Ask Jesus to save you because that's why he came. He came to save. To live a perfectly sinless life in order to be that perfectly sinless sacrifice on that cross. And when you place your faith in Jesus, like Isaiah 53, when you you say, I trust you, Jesus, you alone, 
for my hope in salvation. To forgive my sins and to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. When you say that, a transaction happens that you many times don't feel. The light switch sometimes doesn't happen there. But this is what happens spiritually. Isaiah 53. Your iniquities are placed on him. Your penalty for sin is put on him. He takes the chastisement, the wrath of God for you on the cross. He dies in your place. And by believing that he rose again three days later, two things occur. Two things occur. You are transferred from from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life and you live with him for eternity. The second thing that happens is you go from being an outcast to a friend and son or daughter of God. And that's the third thing this shows us. From 300 feet, that's the 300 foot view. Jesus brings outcasts in. Each of these three people that we see here is a different type of outcast. The leper was a societal outcast. I mean, you didn't want to get within a mile of a leper 2,000 years ago. The centurion was an ethnic outcast. He was a Gentile. He was considered by Jews to be outside the love of God. They were considered such outcasts that the, the New Testament writers had to continually stop what they were saying and tell the Jewish audience, no, these guys are part of our family now. The dividing wall of hostility is broken down, as it says in Ephesians 2. And Peter's mother-in-law was a gender outcast. A woman, as we, we know, 2,000 years ago, had, had no legal standing, no legal rights. And by these specific healings, we begin to see a pattern emerging in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? That Jesus cares for the outcasts. That he's coming for the outcasts. That he's bringing the outcasts in. And that pattern is throughout his whole ministry. He comes for the hated, like Zacchaeus. He comes for the ignored, like the man at the pool of Bethesda who was sitting there for 39 years, ignored. He comes for the discarded, like the prostitutes. He comes for the oppressed, like the uh, demoniacs, rather. He comes for the helpless, the paralytic on a mat. The 300-foot detail that Matthew wants us to see is that Jesus comes to allow those who are outside in. And that is critical for us to grasp. It's critical for us to grasp. Because no matter who you are or where you came from, you were at one time a spiritual outsider. And that's what Paul goes on to say in, in Ephesians 2, doesn't it? You too were among them. He's reminding them. And Jesus wants us to remember that. Not, not so that we can dwell and be crushed by that at all. But he, he always wants us to remember that. Tim Keller writes this, When a Christian sees a prostitute alcoholics, prisoners, drug addicts, unwed mothers, homeless, refugees. He knows he's looking into a mirror. Perhaps the Christian spent all of his life as a respectable middle class person. No matter. 
The Christian is to think spiritually and say, I was just like these people. Though not physically or socially, I never was there where they are now. They are outcasts, and spiritually speaking, I was an outcast too. It's okay to look back over our shoulder and realize what we've been given. That's a good thing. So as we read about how Jesus brought these three outcasts in, let it remind us of the healing that we have received, the spiritual healing that we have received. Like that leper, desperate for cleaning, thus cleansed. Let it remind us of the powerful love of Christ. Like that of the centurion, Jesus heals with a word. Let it humble us. And remind us that we were outcast too until Jesus came to our bedside and healed us. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And again, Holy Spirit, we implore you to use it for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen.